This is Christy Drutman, and you are listening to Brown Girl Green, where I interview environmental leaders and advocates about diversity and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. To start off today's episode, I wanted to acknowledge that I'm recording this podcast on Ohlone land, otherwise known as the Bay Area. This is your daily reminder that we are all living on stolen indigenous land, and if we have the platform to do so, we must acknowledge it as often as possible. Today's music is courtesy of Orca. You can subscribe to their music on SoundCloud. What's up, everyone? I wanted to follow up on our last conversation to talk about the relationship between racial inequity and the environment. So for this week's episode, I wanted to specifically zone in on environmental racism. So environmental racism was a term that was originally thrown around during the original environmental justice movement during the 70s and the 80s. And it essentially is a term that is referencing the phenomenon of climate and environmental injustice occurring in the context of racial oppression. This can be shown through public policy and social practices, which makes uh, things like clean water, air, green spaces, access to grocery stores extremely difficult for particular communities. This can lead to communities, particularly communities of color, to suffer from long-term detrimental impacts. So environmental racism can come in many forms, such as locally, where low-income communities and communities of color do not have access to clean water or healthy food, as I just named. Or globally, it can be seen with environmental land defenders, aka people who are defending their land from deforestation, extraction, mining, etc., being killed at astronomical rates. According to a study published in Nature Sustainability, at least 1,558 people in 50 states were killed between 2002 and 2017 while trying to protect their land, water, or local wildlife, which as of 2019 was equivalent to the death toll of almost half of the U.S. troops killed in Iraq and Afghanistan since 2001. Essentially, when we're talking about environmental racism, we're talking about the policies and the practices that are being put in place that are making it extremely difficult for black, indigenous, and people of color to have access to a clean and healthy environment without, without having to go through a bunch of bureaucratic hoops or getting murdered. So it's important that we talk about environmental racism, especially when we're talking about creating a country that feels safe and equitable for everyone, especially for black lives. We have to talk about how the environment plays a role in that. And so I think that oftentimes, because of just the the history of deindustrialization, communities are presented with false choices between jobs or healthy environment. Mm -hmm. And I think what I've recognized and what other folks have recognized is that workers need to be able to go to a good job and then return back to a healthy environment. That was the voice of Justin Onwenu, an environmental justice and community organizer from Detroit, Michigan, who was featured in this week's episode. I think it's important to expand on the premise of false choices, as Justin said, such as jobs or a healthy environment. Today, we will be talking about the impacts of the choices we make and their lasting impact on both the environment and marginalized communities. Currently, 
I think the forks in the road that we are presented with in today's society are advocating for little victories like black squares on your IG feed compared to going big and deep into systemic change like reforming our education or criminal justice systems. We are also presented with the division between protest with possible destruction versus much more unguaranteed change from institutions and politicians or continuous violent black death versus no coverage from media and apathetic non-black people of color or white people. With false choices, black, indigenous, and people of color are kept under oppressive manipulative guidelines. They are told that change must be done in a certain fashion under certain rules in order to advance or progress our society rather than deteriorate it. Yet, we are seeing communities who have been trying to follow the rules for decades getting the short end of the environmental stick. They are being placed in extremely vulnerable positions of living in communities that are in proximity to pollution of their air, water, and soil. Due to many frontline communities also being low income, many do not have the privilege or opportunity to continuously lobby or attend city council meetings to advocate for their rights for a clean and healthy environment. Some communities may even go as far as pursuing a lawsuit around the pollution of their air or water and may not get any conclusive relief for years or decades. The lack of autonomy that frontline communities that are impacted by environmental racism have furthers the agenda of assimilating to institutions and power structures that at the end of the day don't even serve communities that are most vulnerable. They also make it incredibly hard to change their situation. This makes solutions to addressing environmental racism look like a maze. This episode features Justin as well as Latricia Adams, the president and founder of Black Millennials for Flint, who talk about how they created their own choices to fight back against environmental racism, what that looks like, what that feels like, and how other people in their communities can do the same. And a funny note about this episode, the original recording got super messed up because I recorded all of my podcasts as live stream video interviews originally, and due to that, there can sometimes be a little technical difficulty. When this original episode aired, there was a ton of Wi-Fi issues, the program shut down, and my guests on the show literally continued the interview by recording themselves and asking each other the questions. And it was honestly the most beautiful form of solidarity I've ever experienced on the Brown Girl Green Show. So I'm excited for you all to listen to this episode, which I did a little plastic surgery on, and I hope you enjoy and take a listen. So I made this uh, special episode in honor of the 50th anniversary of Earth Day, and I just really wanted to add some more melanin to Earth Day and wanted to bring up a really important topic that impacts communities of color in particular, which is environmental racism. So I really wanted to bring up this topic because I think that it's thrown around a lot. Certain terms about vulnerable frontline communities is thrown out a lot, but we don't actually go into the weeds of what that looks like, what that means, and actually asking people who do the community organizing themselves you know, how are they fighting back? How are they taking action? But first, I want to ask Justin to introduce himself. Hey, everyone. My name is Justin Anwenu. 
I'm an environmental justice organizer based in Detroit, Michigan. I work for the Sierra Club, things like clean air, clean water, of course, you know, primarily for, you know, frontline and environmental justice communities here in Michigan. Thank you so much for joining. And I just wanted to bring up to everyone, the reason I, I learned about Justin was this amazing article that I was reading that, that criticized this concept of, okay, we hear all these environmentalists praising the Venice canals are clearing up and the Himalayas you can see because the pollution's clearing up. But then there's still communities in uh, areas like where Justin lives that are still experiencing air pollution, especially low-income communities and communities of color, and, and who's taking recognition or ownership to deal with that. And I think that that really struck me in a really deep and profound way. And I, I was like, he has to be on my show because <laughs> I, love, I love that edge. And I wanted to ask you, Justin, how do you think you were changing the image of what it means to be an environmentalist and what, what do you like about your approach? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't know if I've ever thought of it as changing the image. So flattered by that, but I think in general, you know, not just me, there, there are a lot of environmental justice leaders who for decades have been sounding the alarm, essentially saying that, you know, the communities that we're living in, that a lot of times are adjacent to landfills, refineries, other toxic sites, that we have to pay, you know, extreme and close attention to the intersections between race, systematic racism, and environmental issues. I think traditionally the environmental movement, um, you know, even if you look at the founding of the Sierra Club and, and other environmental organizations, you know, you know, to be frank, they don't have a, a great history. In a lot of cases, they were founded by white men preserving nature and spaces for white men. Nature was seen as an escape from the wild jungle city. And a lot of communities, whether it be women or, or, or Black people or other communities of color, haven't had access to those spaces. So the environmental movement just historically has, has always fought and, and had tension with trying to make sure that inclusivity isn't just something that's talked about. So the environmental justice movement, in, in my mind, comes out of the struggle of you know, the civil rights movement and other struggles, sanitation worker strike, uh, Dr. King, and other efforts that have essentially raised the profile of, of cases where Black communities have schools built on landfills, mm-hmm. and other cases of environmental racism. And so in my mind, the approach that I've tried to take especially in Michigan and especially in Detroit, a city that, you know, you you hear a lot of conversations around deindustrialization, the need for jobs, the need for economic development. And so I think that oftentimes, because of just the the history of deindustrialization, communities are presented with false choices between jobs or healthy environment. Mm -hmm. And I think what I've recognized and what other folks have recognized is that workers need to be able to go to a good job and then return back to a healthy environment. And also that kids going to school need clean air to be able to perform to their to their highest potential. And just I think that the cost of pollution and environmental racism is a lot higher than what we recognize. And so I think what I've tried to do is is dispel a lot of the false choices that people are given between jobs and environment. And, and I'm I'm hoping that that's shifting the conversation. Yeah. And I think building off of that, for people who have never heard the term environmental racism, 
there's a lot of histories on on why that exists and and why environmental racism continues to run rampant in communities of color. Could you speak about, you know, some of those driving factors and and also like why you believe in solutions to fighting environmental racism? Yeah, I think the the interesting thing about doing environmental justice work is that sometimes it seems like every issue is encompassed in environmental justice. Yeah. So you talk about housing and the housing conditions that a lot of folks are living in as an issue of, of living or not having access to a healthy environment. You talk about, of course, like clean air, clean water, Flint's a, an example of that. You talk about access to jobs and a just transition and all those terms that speak to the economic intersections with environmental justice. And so I think a lot of times it, it can mean everything. And so it, it gets confusing. Um, but I would simply say that the environmental justice movement is, is a recognition that we can't ignore systematic racism, economic inequality, you know, trying to secure a clean environment, healthy environment for all people. So yeah. I, think that, I think that's the, that's the main thing. Yeah. And how long have you been doing work like this? Like what inspired you to get into environmental justice organizing? So I have a kind of, I initially wanted to be a doctor. Um, <laughs> uh-huh. my, mom, my mom's a nurse, my grandmother, you know, is a nurse and was a caretaker at one point. Yeah. And so I grew up interested in medicine and wanted to do health disparities work. My, my dad immigrated to Detroit from Nigeria when he was 20. And my mom's side of the family has been in Detroit for many generations with the kind of great migration, African-Americans moving from the South up to the Midwest for jobs. So I grew up interested in health disparities, global health. I wanted to set up clinics around the country and around the world. And I think for me, that changed. You know, before college, there was a program that I entered where they basically took you around the city of Houston to different social justice organizations to expose you to just, you know, whatever field you end up going in, whether it's medicine, banking, art, you should have kind of a social justice lens through which you're looking um, at the world. And one of the organizations that I got introduced to is Tejas, which is the Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services. Mm-hmm. You know, on a tour of the city, I, I still have a picture that I'm looking at now in my apartment, you know, the home of a Houston police officer that's surrounded on three sides by tank farms and industries. And this is like within arm's length distance. The fence is is the border. And I thought about that. I was, I think, shocked by that. And I think I processed that by becoming a lot more interested in public health. I was always doing public health research and public health volunteer work, but it was always in combination with, I want to be a doctor and that changed for me in 2017, Hurricane Harvey hit. That was the year when there was Hurricane Maria. There was mm-hmm. Hurricane Maria. There was Hurricane, like four, yeah. 500, 1,000 year storms in, you know, a year, which is, which is telling. So for me that it, it wasn't immediate, but I, I started, I think, to feel guilty in a lot of ways that Folks are losing their homes. Folks are having mold in their homes and are, are getting sick from the hurricane. All sorts of things. Climate change had a lot to do with the severity of that storm. And so I just felt like I needed to broaden my thinking, think about things on a different scale. I think for that reason, I became a lot more interested in environmental justice. It sounded good in theory. Did not have a job on graduation day. Got a, got a job so real. 
Yeah, so got a job offer on graduation day, which was just really fortunate. We have been doing environmental justice work since then. What does your work look like on a, a day-to-day basis? Yeah, so when I first started, I was I was still in Houston. I stayed in Houston for a year. And what we're trying to do, it was for an organization called the Children's Environmental Health Initiative. And so what we're trying to do is uncover a lot of the environmental and public health impacts of the hurricane that hit. Hmm. Um, so I was going to churches and public health fairs and, you know, random events to basically register people for this health registry that would ask them a bunch of questions about their experience before the storm and after the storm. And so I got a exposure to, you know, I met families with where people still had tarps on their homes over a year after the storm. Folks had, you know, asthma, different cancers started popping up. And this was all from the hurricane and the fact that a lot of these communities were living right next to refineries and toxic waste facilities that had overflown during the hurricane or just were negligent during the hurricane. And so, yeah, I did that for a year. And so moved back to Michigan uh, last summer. And since then, it's been a lot of, we've had, you know, a lot of town halls, a lot of rallies, also been a, tried to try to be focused on shifting policy, city council meetings and, and trying to push lawmakers in the right direction. That is so badass. <laughs> I love it. Okay, well, I'm super excited. It looks like our friend here from Black Millennials for Flint. Yes. Hey. Hi. <laughs> Hi. This is epic. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, is fantastic. Well, would you like to introduce yourself and your work? Yeah. yeah. Sure. Um, So my name is Latricia Adams. I am the founder, president and CEO of Black Millennials for Flint. Just a a quick historical context of who we are. So we actually were founded on the East Coast in Washington, D.C. My work started initially as a community outreach effort, which was to get immediate resources to Flint, like many people responded. But soon we quickly realized it was much deeper than just getting water. After 2015, we officially became a movement on February the 10th, 2016. And so our work has expanded to include work around still direct services with Flint, Michigan properly. One of the most notable things that we've done in Flint, Michigan is to partner with Jaden Smith's organization 501c3 to bring about the water box with our partner in Flint First Trinity Baptist Church. In addition to that, we have a program called the Lead Prevention Ambassador Program, where essentially we work with Gen Zers and millennials to do training around policy advocacy. That's us in a nutshell. I don't want to keep going on and on and on and boring you all of that. <laughs> so happy to, to finally join and thank you for your, your patience. Yes, thank you so much. This is super fun. Well, what we were discussing before you hopped on, we were just talking about environmental racism what it is and how it shows up in our communities. I was wondering in your perspective through your own community work, working, working in Flint, what are some of the solutions that you've identified are necessary to combat environmental racism? I think one of the biggest things is around educational awareness. 
So it's educational awareness mixed with making sure that there's comprehensive historical context. So as it relates to Flint, Michigan, environmental health issues did not just start with the Flint water crisis. Even when you think about the, the state of the Flint River, for example, we have to think about the impact of the automotive industry and how there had been decades of dumping and, and other really heinous actions that contributed to those environmental health issues that when the Flint water crisis happened, it kind of exacerbated some of those issues that already were present. Kind of bringing that into the now, it's pretty haphazard to think about the issues that plague specifically Black and Brown communities without thinking about those elements that kind of got us to the now. So some of the work that we do alongside with providing resources with clean water is we try to paint a really clear picture of the, the past and the now so that people can clearly understand like how this all came to be. And then the other part of it is we really help to build people's capacity to be able to fight back. So we have seen over the years, over the almost five years now, we have seen where people are pissed, you know, just to be completely frank and they have every reason to be, but we want to support people with using that fire to really get to a point where the real decisions need to be made. And the biggest part in Flint and just Michigan all together is around accountability. I mean, <laughs> I can't even be begin to talk about like how just how disgusting i can't even think of a, a euphemism the whole process has been around um the flint water crisis i'm not sure if people have heard about three days ago some new information has come out about the negligence around former governor snyder around him really being knowledgeable of all of the things that could have and did take place with the flint water crisis it's really important from our perspective to make sure that the narrative of people in Flint is still elevated because it's still not over. Right. I think, I think something else I've noticed, especially, you know, since I'm based in Detroit, I think people need more of the history of, of the role of emergency managers and mm -hmm. loss of democracy in the Flint water crisis. So for, for folks who don't know, Michigan has this super archaic law where, the governor can appoint an emergency manager to take over by the city manager, Kevin Orr. Flint, Benton Harbor, a lot of other, you know, predominantly black cities in Detroit have gone through similar cases where local government exists, lo local folks have elected their leaders, and the state government basically takes that, that democratic process away and appoints an emergency manager. So in Flint, they knew the river was corroded because the, the, the local auto companies did not want to use the water because they were saying that it was corroding the, the car part. Mm -hmm. So they knew that the water was corroded, but the emergency manager in Flint and the emergency manager in Detroit were trying to work out a deal for, for water rates. And the city of Detroit basically turned down the offer or the city of Flint's emergency manager was not pleased with the offer. And so that's why they switched the water from the Detroit source to Flint and, and, and launched a crisis. So I think, yeah, definitely in environmental justice and, and the environmental justice movement, it's important to recognize like the role of democracy and folks just having basic civil rights taken away 
because we're seeing it in Detroit and Flint all over Michigan and in the country. So I think that it also one of the things that we really focus on is to look at environmental racism from an intersectional perspective, being able to really tease out all of the different factors of just human life that are impacted by environmental justice issues. So I like the fact that you brought up the part about democracy. Just speaking to Flint, like democracy was robbed from the people in Flint. I even think about most recently came out, which I'm not sure if it had been elevated enough, but even in the the trials that included former Governor Rick Snyder and some of the other people who were actually indicted, those legal fees were paid with tax dollars. And so you think about like democracy, that that does not paint the, the picture of how democracy should work. And so we think that it's also really important to make sure that with seeking justice, that you are able to clearly identify like what went wrong so that nothing like this will happen again. Uh, just the organizing landscape is really built on the work of folks who have come generations and decades before. And I think Detroit organizers recognize the importance of ancestors and the importance of folks who have just been doing this work for a long time. So just in terms of my personal approach, in terms of trying to tie history to what's going on now, I just think it's super crucial just because every, I think short memory is something that is just a aspect of of living in today where the media cycles drive everything. And I'm hopeful that, you know, going over a lot of the history that you were talking about, a lot of the history that I brought up will educate folks. So stuff like this doesn't happen again. Cause if, if we don't know the history and kind of the roots from a systematic racism, from an intersectional perspective, we're going to, we're going to miss a lot of the, a lot of the signs for when this happens again. Yeah, I can add that. I think it's really important to also make sure that there is a spirit of collectivism. And what I mean by that is to really make sure that there's common understanding with people who have great influence in the community. So when you talk about, for example, the black community, we think that it's really important, regardless of you know what your religious or spiritual beliefs may be, but to make sure that our pastors and our faith-based communities are well-versed and educated in the historical and current issues surrounding environmental justice because they have such a large platform and access to people who are directly impacted by environmental racism, especially thinking about how to get younger people engaged and getting the right information. Social media, as we can see right now, and technology is also critical with making sure that as many people as possible are knowledgeable about what's taking place. So using the Flint water crisis, again, as an example, this started in 2014, right? But the rest of the country didn't really learn about it until 2015. So it took people on the ground in Flint, Michigan, that kind of mirrors some of the historical advocacy and activism in Detroit and making the world look at Flint, look at what's happening in Flint, because at any moment in time where there are black and brown people any city, any town across the country is and can be Flint, Michigan. So I think that it's important to get as many people educated and rallied around that, whether it be 
your local community leaders, whether it be like celebrities, which I know sometimes is, it sounds controversial, but you have to think about the exposure and the impact that they have with their respective platforms. So Hilton Kelly, an environmental activist from Port Arthur, Texas, has described his hometown as a sacrifice zone for the nation and the rest of the world to have sulfur-free gasoline. There are sacrifice zones all over the country, like Flint, Michigan, where folks from each of these communities fall the most susceptible to cancer, asthma, and cardiovascular disease. In your perspective, what are the barriers that prevent people from leaving a sacrifice zone? What do you feel drives the preservation of a sacrifice zone? You know, I, I lived in Houston before and, and saw just how close a lot of folks were to oil refineries. And even in Detroit, you know, the only oil refinery in the state of Michigan is located in Detroit. Um, and then you have dozens of polluting industries, a couple of steel mills, battery manufacturing companies, a lot of other industries, all located within a one mile radius in Detroit. And I think for me, there are a couple of things that drive that. I think number one is... People can't leave if, if the value of their home is just plummeted. So if you bought a home, like a lot of families have passed down homes or bought a home in the mid-1900s, and you've been passing it down to next generations, and the value of that home is just plummeted because now you live next to a facility that is causing pollution, smells, sounds, you know, the number of people who want to buy that home are limited. And so you can't sell that home, get money to go buy a new home because the value of it just won't work out. So a lot of people are trapped where they don't have the money. They own their home. They have retirement security. You know, you, you work your whole life to pay off a home and then you're told like your only way out of living in an area that's giving folks cancer and asthma is to sell your home that isn't worth as much as when you bought it. So a lot of folks, just the economics just don't work out. And I think sacrifice zones like that exist. In Detroit, the city is built for holding 2 million people. And right now our population is, a, is, a, is at about 700,000. And so when you have that many people leave, and this applies to Flint and a lot of other cities in the Midwest, just the cost of maintaining that infrastructure skyrockets. So you have fewer people trying to pay for infrastructure that was supposed to be supported by double the number of people. And so the cost of water, the cost of electricity, the cost of maintaining your home, the cost that a community would normally bear is being, is being bared by fewer people. So in a lot of cases, living in these sacrifice zones is expensive and you have no way of leaving because you're, the, the value of your home is plummeted. So I think a lot of it, of course, has to do with systematic racism and a lot of it has to do with the economics and white flight and just the number of folks who have left a lot of these communities. And to add on to that, I definitely echo all of those thoughts and facts around the economic impacts, but I also want to bring up the cultural impact. So when you think about the, the legacy um, that the people create in, in cities like Flint and cities like Detroit, there's so much there. So yes, like people have built their families have, you know, purchased homes, but they've created their own culture. And when you talk about a crisis, when you talk about environmental justice, it literally is like culture is genocide. So with the thought of me having to leave 
you know, generations of contributions into this community, what my, you know, ancestors, my elders have done to make this place what it would it what it once was, it's painful to think about having to leave all of that behind. And then we have to keep it real. Like even in Flint right now, the gentrification is happening. In Detroit, the gentrification is happening where you have black people um, that have established these wonderful foundations for powerful cities. And then something like environmental racism occurs and then people are displaced And then all of a sudden you start to see this um, resurgence of development and essentially developers and, you know, other crucial people in um, cities creating a new new world that essentially did not invite or maintain the people who actually were there in the beginning. I think that it's, it's really important to acknowledge how systemic racism looks so different and it's so nuanced. And that's definitely something that is adjacent to the environmental racism component as well. Right. That's a good point. Like, Especially now with gentrification in Detroit. Yes. And I don't know what it's going to do to that, but it's a, it's a big concern. And I think in Detroit, dealing with, in Flint as well, dealing with water shutoffs, where, you know, if you don't have enough money, the city will shut your water off is an oversimplification of things. But people are always kind of confused about, like, why would the city not want to provide water to people who don't yeah. have it? Why aren't politicians, et cetera, doing what they can do to help folks. And I think you pointed out gentrification, which is a huge issue. And I think one of the driving factors for why folks have had their water shut off in the city of Detroit, the water bills are connected to whether you keep your home or your home gets foreclosed or not. So if you have back water bills and your water gets shut off, that could lead to you losing your home. And if you lose your home due to foreclosure, that it's not like the home just goes away. The home goes to the city to be sold off for pennies on the dollar, which then can be bought by private interest. And so there's a huge incentive for policymakers who are interested in in privatizing a lot of the city to use water shutoffs and and other means to get black, brown, poor people out of the city. So what's super appreciative that you brought up the the point of gentrification because it's huge. today's break, we're going to go back to false choices and choices in general. How do we make Black Lives Matter if your zip code, skin color, etc. determines your life chances? In a recent New York Times article called Black Environmentalists Talk About Climate and Anti-Racism, Heather McGee, a senior fellow at Demos, a nonpartisan research and advocacy group, stresses success is measured by the improvement in the environmental and economic health of the people who have borne the brunt of our carbon economy. It's important to understand what a frontline community is, which is essentially understanding who exactly in your community is impacted by environmental racism. Who's disproportionately impacted by pollution, living near freeways or polluted waterways, etc. I hope that you can gain some clarity on that and learn how to support those in the frontline of your community. And frontline can be defined as the most vulnerable and marginalized population that can be found in your city, town, state, etc., who desperately need resources and support to receive equitable access to resources. Who's making parks and clean water or renovated sidewalks more accessible? 
Keeping life as a series of choices determined by those in power puts frontline communities in a framework where they have to choose between basic human rights. Ms. McGee also shared, this conversation is a police brutality conversation on top of a COVID-19 conversation, and it all ends up to a devaluation of black life. That's what climate change is as well because of environmental racism. We've got to divest from systems that are killing us and costing us and invest in our people and our planet. Like she said, we have to redistribute how systems of wealth and power allocate their funds, ensuring that they protect our frontline community first. This can be seen in the folks that we're interviewing here today, Black Millennials for Flint, who are actually taking action on this each and every day. This all too familiar game of systemic racial oppression is what feeds ongoing environmental injustice. When public policy and social practices fail to take the action steps to make living necessities accessible to everyone, the long-term detrimental effects often are made extremely difficult to change. Frontline communities in turn lack clean water, fresh air, green spaces, supermarkets, and overall safe neighborhoods to live in. Lack of functioning infrastructure leads to the disempowerment of communities and their ability to be climate resilient. Once frontline communities are actually able to take priority in the minds and the hearts of today's America, then living environments can shape to fit the needs of those to be empowered. During the rest of our interview, our guests will be sharing some tips, resources, and suggestions on how communities can continue combating environmental racism and support communities on the ground who've been doing this work for decades. So from y'all's perspective, how do you see cities addressing environmental racism? How do you feel it contrasts with the strategies that your coalition is currently practicing? And what are some of the organizing strategies that you feel have worked the most effectively in your work? It's kind of a continuum. So in the very beginning, especially like with us kind of working like across the country, it was really helpful to maintain that the issue with water and Flint was still very much an issue. The biggest concern was it wasn't getting that all that media attention that it was getting initially. And it kind of created this facade that everything was okay and everything was not okay and is, is still not okay. The city is not going to be okay until everyone literally is safe and all pipes are replaced. So the power of social media really helped to drive that gap in media and communication forward. A, a quick example. So I know a lot of people in millennial land get really excited about social media clout with how many followers you have. So we mm. actually don't have like a ton of followers. I think we have like about 2000 some odd followers, like on Instagram, for example. However, because like we keep staying the same, like messaging over and over again, we caught the eye of Van Lakeman, who was formerly on TMZ. And so he literally like hit us up, like he dimmed us and was like, hey, I think that the work that you all are doing, you know, is really good. What can I do to help? We also had some other like kind of national platform folks to help us with kind of spreading the message to bring awareness forward, like Amanda Seals, who of course stars on Insecure with HBO. So it's really been an interesting experience with kind of seeing like you never know who's looking at your pages. You never know 
who's looking at your post. That has been uh, economically, it's important too, because we're grassroots. We don't have a lot of coin over here, uh, but it, it is a really great way to help people to like focus on this issue. Cause that's the only way that like we can get traction as grassroots organizers. And we have to be real about that is who's behind the message. That's been really helpful as far as strategy. Also having platforms like this. So we've been doing like Twitter roundtables and town halls for a few years now. And so that also is extremely helpful. So another organization that they caught attention of us was like the Environmental Defense Fund, which in the spirit of transparency is a very white organization. And it's just been really awesome that they're looking at organizations like us to figure out how can we reach black and brown people? What is the best way to convey those messages, to empower those communities? So we have really been blessed as far as our social media strategy. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I feel like Term organizer has been used just so much, it's lost a lot of its meaning. But I think in general, in the activism space, I think rightfully so, we have a reverence for kind of the approaches that have succeeded for such a long time. But now with social media, with new media, I think it's important to, to use those as tools. I know in the city of Detroit, media, whether it be local news, where a huge percentage of the population still, still watches local news, I think it's 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 really important tool to to get the attention and to to get pressure on local government officials. There was a a press conference that we held before coronavirus started a couple of months ago and essentially we were trying to get an ordinance introduced and passed that would protect the Detroit River where a lot of the drinking water comes from. And we held the press conference outside of the mayor's office and there wasn't really concern from the mayor's office until they started seeing media reports that had a picture of our press conference that said, City Hall, we're watching you. I started, I started getting calls from like the mayor's you know, right hand and left hand people, um, all because they saw that sign that said, City Hall, we're watching you. So all of that to say, depending on the city and the, the organizing landscape you're working in, media can play a really, really huge role as a really important tool for for putting pressure where it needs to be pressed. And that's definitely the case in Detroit. And yeah, and I also think, I love that you raised that point um, around, and I like that, like, we're watching you, City Hall. Um, but one of the things that we do as far as training, we also make sure that people, even if they're not able to physically go to local meetings, they understand, like, the power of, making sure that you get things on the record. We also encourage people to make public comment, which is so important. And then we do a lot of work with collaborating with other organizations. I know sometimes I don't necessarily agree, for example, with some of our legacy civil rights organizations, but it's powerful if you can get like a NAACP or an Urban League to, you know, support the messaging around your efforts. It does help to open up the door a little bit more for you to be able to really get in there with the real decision makers to really make some action happen. So I really like that. People don't like for you to put them on the spot. <laughs> and we, you know, but you have to, and it can be done diplomatically. I think a lot of times people are afraid and that's fair, but it's not an attack. It's just to 
hold you accountable. If you're in office, that's your job. Our job is to, you work for us. It's not the other way around. And I think that's what we always want people to to leave with is they don't run us. This is this is this is our city. This is our town. And they are working for us to make sure that it's the place that we as citizens want it to be. So we've seen in academia and even in some of these bigger mainstream environmental nonprofits that a lot of research spaces can tend to extract information and histories from communities, do research on environmental justice, then poof, they vanish. What are the struggles that you feel your organizations experience with either receiving funding or, you know, trying to maintain these long term trusting relationships with these bigger environmental nonprofits or foundations or companies, corporations, et cetera, that try to contact you about your work? Oh, yeah. That that definitely is a huge issue. Of course, like Flint is kind of like the poster child for that. With grassroots organizations like ours, sometimes we get caught in the fire where we've been around like since the beginning. But essentially, you find people who just want to get like the story on like what's going on and literally like use it for their own personal and financial gain. I mean, it it would blow your mind, like even how many people like contact us trying to get access to people on the ground in Flint. And so one of the things that we've had to do is we we kind of are the gatekeeper. Where if you if you want to reach out to our our brothers, our tribe in Flint, like we'll tell you no. Like if you don't look legit, if we, you know, we use the the, the spirit of discernment and like mm, we don't really know like if you're really gonna be invested in um this movement to support Flint, then we kind of like, no, you have to find some other type of avenue, you know, to to do what you want to do. But I, I think that. One of the things that has been the most problematic is not making sure that people from Flint who are on the ground in Flint have a narrative. Let the people who are in Flint, who have been doing this work, let those people be on the front line. Let them be able to control their narrative because you start to get into research, you start to get into theory. Right. You start to not consistently incorporate the humanity and the lack thereof that exists with a crisis like this. You also just lose touch and it loses like the, the aspect of community. It was it. Flint rocked the nation. This small city made places across the country look at their infrastructure look at how you know our children being exposed to lead in schools it it literally is a movement that has rocked the nation and i think that there are too many people on the outside that's kind of still in their thunder where truly the testament of the the flint activists that have been on the ground we literally you know, from all over the place can learn so much around the power of holding people accountable, the power of media. Because again, like no one gave, you know what, (laughs) until it started to make, you know, national press. So I, I do think that that is a huge problem. Also speaking a little bit more to the academia side, I know there was quite a bit of controversy around last year where 
Professor Mark Edwards, who was initially so very instrumental in the whole whistleblower process, exposing what was going on in Flint. But then it became really, really interesting where people on the ground in Flint were saying like the water still is not safe. And then kind of this higher education academia arrogance that's like, no, you're wrong. That's not right. And it goes back to what I said, like, number one, you don't live there. Number two, it's going to take so much emotional work and healing. This was traumatic to even get people to trust the government, trust the water, trust everybody ever again. And it's so insensitive, you know, for someone, you know, to essentially discredit the the sentiments and real life experience of people who are actually living their day to day. Right. I think the work I was doing fell into the research and academia space. And so that's one of the reasons I, I wanted to do more grassroots organizing based work. But that's definitely an issue. I'm curious to know about where you see your work moving forward uh, in the next year or so. And to tell us more about those intersections of climate change and, and racism and, and how they show up in your work. I guess Compared to a lot of other social justice spaces, environmental justice movement has seen a lot fewer victories just because when you think of like the scale of the problem, you have people who have been redlined into communities of poverty in a lot of cases. You have people who for generations have lived next to places where the government doesn't care if there's toxic waste next to you, if there's toxic air next to you. So we're dealing with like legacy and generations of environmental injustice. And so I think it's a lot harder to tackle with one policy fix than other areas where it's, it's a lot more simple. I will say, though, that locally, some of the campaigns that I've been working on, there was a, a site on the Detroit River, kind of referenced this before, but there was a site along the Detroit River that used to be used for the Manhattan Project. So our, our effort during World War II to build a nuclear bomb, a lot of the uranium rods were actually stored and cut on a site, the Revere Copper site, on a site basically right next to the Detroit River. And over the Thanksgiving holiday, uh, so late November, early December, that site you know, it's it's been decades and decades and decades since that activity is, has, has taken place, but the site was contaminated, collapsed into the Detroit River. The owner slash operator of the site was operating without a permit. It was contaminated land. And we didn't know about the fact that it collapsed into the river until over a week after it happened, when a Canadian newspaper reported they, they saw some land collapse. This was a week after it happened. And so, you know, my job as an organizer was to sound the alarm. And so we immediately, within a couple of hours, had Congresswoman Tlaib's office, Congresswoman Dingle's office, Congresswoman Lawrence's office, local congresspeople, and the city of Detroit, the governor's office, on the phone with environmental justice advocates saying, what happened and why didn't you get this wrong? A week after that, we held a town hall that had hundreds of people, again, the governor's office, congressional offices, we had the Coast Guard there as well, getting the state agency for environment was there. The organizing tactic that is is pretty familiar to a lot of folks is basically putting public officials at the front of the room 
and just grilling them with, with questions and just pressure tactics. And so we did that, of course. It put a lot of pressure on the city and on the state to take action. And there have been very few environmental justice victories in the city of Detroit and just in Michigan. But we had the governor and mayor extremely nervous on, on their lack of action and what that would mean to citizens. And so we introduced a city ordinance in February. Unfortunately, with COVID, a lot of the momentum for getting that ordinance passed to prevent situations like that from happening again, that momentum is kind of stalled. But a lot of the demands that we had for the city were done through you know executive action on the city level. And so the city has agreed to inspect companies more regularly along the Detroit River where we get our water. They've issued hundreds of thousands of dollars in fines to companies for a lot of their negligence. So we've seen progress on protecting our water, our drinking water, the Great Lakes. And that's kind of been the most recent campaign that I've focused on. And I also mentioned there's a, a local refinery, the only refinery in the state of Michigan's operating in Detroit. And so a lot of my work has been on trying to get air filtration systems installed in, in local homes and local schools, especially, you know, and, unless that, that refinery closes anytime soon, we're going to need you know, air filtration systems to protect people in the meantime. Some of the things that we have been working on, I mentioned earlier around the water filtration system, where again, we're grassroots, but we were blessed to have access to people with capital. And so with the water box, there are now currently four water filtration centers in the city of Flint. Adjacent to that or alongside to that is we have a really good, we have a good rapport with the new mayor of Flint, Michigan. And one of the things that he did immediately in the first 30 days of office was he wanted to do a whole like audit of how many people still like have their water turned off. How many people actually, you know, still live along where lead service pipelines still exist? And I think the the biggest victory in that is to be that empathetic um, for him to actually look to see like who is being even more disenfranchised. And so he just became mayor, and now there is a um, a pandemic. So it shone light on why it's so important to put humanity first before money. So one of the things that we're working on now is that's great that that was a call to action, but now it's just to make sure that it's actually being implemented with fidelity. So making sure that, you know, we cool, you know, but we want to make sure that there's actually being delivery on those promises to the community that people have access to water. I do want to give a shout out to a young lady named Nayira Sharif, she is a Flint native. She still currently resides in Flint. She was the, at the very beginning acting to make sure that there were resources provided to Flint. She had the huge victory, even though it, it stopped in 2018, where Flint residents didn't have to pay their water bills. So she did a lot of organizing at the local and state level. We definitely backed her in those efforts. We did a lot of canvassing work to get people behind that. So right now, our focus kind of shifted. So last year, we set our policy agenda where initially it was going to be to finally get the state of Michigan to make it mandatory to test water in schools for lead. It has been on the docket since 2016, mm -hmm. and it was introduced 
introduced by the current mayor of Flint. But since COVID-19 came around, some of our efforts have actually shifted. But once, you know, we touch and agree it's going to be over, we are going to go back to making sure that Michigan has got to get it together on putting something on paper around a lot of these environmental hazards, one of them with our focus being around lead. We need to get it together. And my last question for you all is, what are the ways y'all are cultivating joy in order to keep fighting this fight for the long term? How, how are you making this sustainable and being able to have fun with each other? I think that's super important in order to avoid people burning out and feeling really miserable in this work. So one thing that we like to do or that we do so for the past three years, we have something that's called the Young, Gifted, and Green Community Action Summit. And so it is a lot of moving parts, but it happens every year in D.C. We we fly people out from Flint, and we also have two other service areas, one of them being in Memphis, then also in Baltimore, and then, of course, D.C. And at the summit, one, the reason why we do it is because I spent time living on the East Coast, and I'm a native Memphian. I had never seen that many black and brown people that's empowered, you know, that's power, you know, power movers, power brokers. And so, you know, the first thing that I wanted to do, I was like, I need to get, you know, my tribe, you know, into these spaces. So that is just so it's so magical to see people who are from, you know, cities like Memphis, cities like Detroit, cities like Flint, to be able to come to, together from a national perspective. And what we do every year is we honor those people who have been just environmental justice warriors within their respective cities. Oftentimes in activism work, it goes super unnoticed. We've also honored people from around the country who have just been instrumental in the movement. And even though I, I think we oftentimes, especially as activists, we don't stop to think about, damn, I did that, right? And so it, y'all, it's just so beautiful to see people's reaction when you've even studied their work, where they're like, dang, I did do that. So that happens every year. Uh, we don't know if it's going to happen physically this year <sighs> due to the pan- the pandemic, but that does instill joy. It gives young people an opportunity to engage with other people that's doing similar work in their respective cities, towns, and states. And then in addition to that, I'm not sure if anybody has been to the Congressional Black Caucus, but outside of the work, people party. <laughs> um, so it also adds a bit of levity there as well, just to give them that little bit of oomph to keep them going in the respective work that they do. And the last thing I would say, we keep things funky and fresh um, with Black Millennials for Flint as millennials. We love brunch. Okay, we love brunch. Don't keep it real. And so we get really creative with the way that we approach programming. So one of my favorite things that we've done before is we did a Black Panther brunch. Everybody was hyped when Black Panther was about to come out. And surprise, it was a policy briefing. (laughs) Um, But we try to get really creative (laughs) to keep people engaged. I, I definitely, do, I don't know how I would feel if I showed up for mimosas and got a, got a it certain, made it better. You know, it was like Kendrick Lamar playing, but we were like, so, <laughs> but it turned out, it turned out really well. <laughs> that was a good idea. I may have to take that idea. 
how do I stay happy, stay grounded? I think this has especially been weird for COVID is I just like being around people. So I think the the distinctions between work and just my general life, like what gives me purpose, those lines are really blurred. So I, I enjoy this work. You know, there's always time for a break and brunch and and stepping away, but I, I definitely get rejuvenated just from being around folks who are in the movement. And in terms of just uplifting the work, I think just for folks who are interested, just doing more research, trying to look behind the curtain on kind of the systematic problems at play, the motivations. I think politically, something that's helped me in my political thinking from from mentors is just thinking about why people are motivated to do certain things. And it, it may not always be apparent unless you do it, unless you do research. So I think for me, I would just suggest for people interested in the work, interested in uplifting, just continuing to, to read articles, to, you know, post on social media about what's going on, but also just to do as much research as you can. So. Well, thank you both so much for being on my show today. I really appreciate your contributions and your support for really pulling this interview together. You both shared such important and powerful stories about environmental racism and your work on community organizing. And yeah, I really appreciate everything that you offer today. And I truly felt loved and supported while recording this episode. So thank you so much for joining this week's episode of Brown Girl Green. Well, thank you for having us too. Yeah, you have been holding it down. Then I had some, you know, difficulties transitioning in. So you demand for, you know, tonight. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Brown Girl Green. I appreciate you listening to my guest this week. I hope that you learned about the power of community organizing and what it takes to actually build clean and healthy environments that are also equitable for low-income communities and communities of color. If you want to check out more resources, I'm going to be listing them in the show notes, how you can support environmental justice organizations on the ground who are combating environmental racism and some other resources to continue exploring this topic. There's so much more to cover and discuss when it comes to talking about not just environmental racism, but systemic racism as a whole. And so this is not the end of this conversation. This is just the beginning. And I hope that this conversation helped spur some of these thoughts in you about how your community is or is not promoting equity and what you can do to continue combating racism in your communities, especially ones that deserve to breathe clean air and drink clean water. I don't think that's too much to ask in this life. So I hope that you like and smash that subscribe button for the Brown Girl Green podcast. You can check out more of my stuff at www.browngirlgreen.org. Follow me on social media at browngirl underscore green. And you are more than welcome to shoot me a message, slide in my DMs, ask me more questions about this topic. Always love to hear your feedback. And if you're so kind as to leave me a review, I would super appreciate it because us environmental media creators are trying our best to put out quality information for you all as quickly as possible. And those reviews go a long way. 
So thank you so much again for listening to the Brown Girl Green podcast. My name is Christy Drutman and I interview environmental leaders and advocates about diversity and inclusion, as well as creative solutions to the climate crisis. I'm working to change the image of what it means to be an environmentalist in the 21st century. I hope to hear from you next time. <music>